Don't you love that hymn? The church is one foundation. I love that second verse that we sang. It really does summarize in many ways what our heart is moving towards this morning in the midst of, amidst of the service. Elect from every nation, yet one, yet one, or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes in one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Almost as if it's a commentary, isn't it, on the passage we read just a little bit earlier from John 17, where the Lord Jesus Christ in that beautiful high priestly prayer prays that we would be one even as He is one with the Father. That's some serious oneness that Jesus is praying for there. And that's really what we want to celebrate and, and also be challenged by. At the same time today, celebrate the incredible unity and oneness that the Lord has granted to this congregation over the last uh, 12 years and recognize that that's a gift from His hand and we need to acknowledge that, but also that the work is not done and that there is many pressures from within and from without to lose sight of the thing that truly unites us and make church and the life of the body of Christ about everything but what it ought to be about. And it's so easy for us to lose sight of it. And so we want to be rebel in God's kindness and both be challenged by His call from this marvelous text of Scripture, Psalm 133. Let's look at God's Word together from this text. Psalm 133, a song of ascents, a song of David. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like a precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we believe that, that your word will stand forever. Men and nations will come and go, but you are steadfast and faithful. Today, we set our gaze yet again towards you and the glory of your gospel promises. Would you come and surprise us with the richness of the truth of Psalm 133? And would what the psalmist David speaks toward be increasingly true in this congregation and in your church at large? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably caught this in the reading, a psalm of ascents. It was three times a year that the people of Israel would make their way to Jerusalem, usually the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, would draw the nation of Israel together there in Jerusalem. And as they made their way to Jerusalem, they would usually ascend, and they would ascend to the Temple Mount, which we'll see is actually referenced, I believe, here in uh, Psalm 133 under the language of Mount Zion. We'll talk more about that here in a second. But as the people of Israel made this, well, these um, 
and these journeys three times a year with, you know, all of the kiddos, the minivan packed to the hilt, you know, it had everything that they needed to, to try to survive on this trip to Jerusalem. As they went, the Lord gave them a soundtrack. He, he, gave, he gave them songs to sing. They're called the Psalms of Ascent. Now, these psalms were literally sung on the road to Jerusalem. Psalms 115, or excuse me, Psalms 120 to Psalm 134, it's actually those of those 15 psalms in all are the ones that they would sing on their way to Jerusalem. Uh, they would sing. So some of you may have been on the road, you know, headed to grandma's house uh, this week for Thanksgiving, and you might have a soundtrack. You might, you might have fights in the car over what soundtrack you're going to listen to on the way. Well, there, there wasn't, I don't think, at least in this case, competing soundtracks because God had given them a musical repertoire, so to speak, that would fill them with the stories of Zion, would fill them with the stories of redemption, where they would go back and remember all of what God has done. That's what these songs are about. They're meant to tell the story. Hey, here's what God did in Egypt when he, taught, when he brought us out by his righteous right hand. Here's why we can hope in him when we're in the wilderness, because he rained manna from heaven. Do you remember when we were in this context and he gave, we were you know, totally parched and water poured forth from the rock? They would tell the stories through the Psalms of Ascent and remind each other of, well, why they come to church, you know, why, why they're making this journey to Jerusalem, this, this hot, long, dusty, probably with two- and three-year-olds complaining along the way, um, why they made this journey to Jerusalem. What's it all about? Well, the Psalms of Ascent were meant to really help them keep in mind what it is that the Lord had done. Now, I think it's important imaginatively that we actually go there with the people of Israel. What would it have been uh, like well, it would have been friends and neighbors there, right? People that you were traveling with in caravan because, well, you needed protection and safety, and that usually came in numbers. They would walk together, make pit stops together by, by brooks and creeks as they made their way. They would have pitched tents at night and bedded down and started fires. They would have been telling stories about, hey, do you remember when we made this journey 10 years ago and, you know, almost got trampled by that camel? That was incredible, you know, and they're telling those stories. And, and then someone starts singing Psalm 120 and, and, then, and then Psalm 121. And by the campfire at night, they sang, home on the range. No, they sang Psalm 133. They, they sang these words, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Don't you love how this psalm starts? It doesn't start with a command. It doesn't start with instruction. It starts with this declaration, with this kind of benediction with an exclamation mark. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You notice here that David is, it's like he's recognizing the fact that God has brought together this ragtag group of people, these 12 tribes dispersed over an expanse of land who have, a, who have an up and down and very twisting narrative and story. He's brought all of these people together, and as he sees them sing praises to the Lord with one voice, he says, man, how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell together in unity, 
Do you ever catch yourself on a Sunday morning, those of you members here at Cornerstone, when you're singing in this building with such great acoustics, and you're singing one of those songs that just ministers so deeply to your soul, and you look across the way, and you see other people with their eyes closed, maybe with their, their hands up, or you see an earnestness with regards to their worship. It encourages your soul all the more, like we read in Colossians, and there's something of how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Have you experienced that here? I pray you have. I know I do, just even joining you in worship. And I've got the best seat in the house. I get to see your faces, and I get to see your expressions of worship. And really, by seeing you worship in the truth of the gospel, I'm called into worship. And that's part of the glory of what it means to be the body of Christ. It is a good, and it is a pleasant thing. Notice those two words, though. Good and pleasant. It'd be easy to read them and just think they're, they're kind of synonyms. You know, David's here. He's a poet. He's just piling up some words, giving us some different um, imagery to, to think through. But he's essentially saying the same thing. Well, there's certainly overlap between good and pleasant. I mean, you may have pushed back from the Thanksgiving table this week and said, that was good. That was really good. I know I did. And what you meant is essentially what this psalm means by the word pleasant. I am pleased with what I just ate. It is pleasing to me. It's really the experience of something joyful or comforting or pleasant. It's the experience that arises from it. It is pleasant when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. I mean, isn't it? I mean, like when you have that moment in your, you know, your home and you're going to read, you know, the, the last section of the last battle in the Chronicles of Narnia and you made milkshakes that night as a family and like everybody's actually on the same page and you read those glorious words and you're reminded of the richness of that story. And it's just like, you know, a Hallmark movie moment in your home. And it's really different from when like we're fighting over the toys or we're angry that we get to have to unload the dishwasher. It's a moment where you say, this is pleasant. The experience of joy, a felt sense of it, a lived experience of joy. You can imagine that that happened on the journey as they were making their way uh, to Jerusalem. But it's not just a felt experience. Notice he calls it good. And, and you might think that good is like pleasant. It can be, but it, mean, it carries more moral freight than the word pleasant. He's actually saying it's not just it feels good. It is good. It is objectively good. It is good when we're unified. It's right that we would be unified. It is good and it is, it is pleasant. It's an objective reality. It's not just a preference. It's something that God is saying carries moral weight to it. It's something that we should prize. It's something that we should long for. We should long for God's people to not just experience the pleasantness of of shallow peace, but the goodness of substantial union. That's different. We have all kinds of places that cry peace, peace when there is no peace. We're not looking for superficial pleasantness. We're looking for a kind of unity that, that runs all the way to the bottom so that we can call it not just pleasant, but it is good. It carries that sense of weight to it. I had a friend in seminary who pastored in an interim fashion two small churches in sort of west 
uh, Alabama. He would drive over from Jackson, Mississippi to preach at one church at 9 o'clock in the morning. And then he would preach at another church just down the street at 10.30 in the morning. The first church had 17 members. The second church had 12 members, whopping congregations, right? And he would drive between these two churches, an hour and a half between kind of these, you know, between the 9 o'clock and the 10.30 service, but 20 minutes in terms of driving. And so he'd show up just in time. Usually the other service had already begun. And he was having a fellowship with one of the elders. Uh, and as he was fellowshipping with him, he asked the, well, the infamous question, hey, um, have you guys ever thought about joining? You know, these two churches that are 20 minutes apart and 17 and 12 members respectively. And the man looked at him like he had a horn growing out of his forehead and then began to give him a history lesson. A history lesson on all the troublemakers in that other church and all the reasons that that could, uh, could never work and all the personal hurts and festering bitternesses and resentments that were part and parcel of the history between these two congregations. In other words, there is no way in you know where that we're ever going to be able to unify these two congregations. Now, it's remarkable they're in the same denomination. They have overlapping uh, commitments. They have similar philosophy of ministries, but they have, quote-unquote, irreconcilable differences. That unwillingness to reconcile because of a past history. You know, too often that's true in our churches, isn't it? You know, we really very often... Um, don't fight over the things worth fighting about it. We fight over the carpet, you know, the color of it. And, and we fight over, that, you know, pews or chairs, or we, we fight over what the minister wears. Do I look okay today, according to you? We fight over these things that, that ultimately aren't the substantial matters, are they? And they keep us apart from one another. And actually, when we look at Psalm 133 and we hear that it is good... Part of what David is emphasizing is what Jesus is emphasizing, that it should be a moral priority in the life of a congregation to pursue oneness and unity, both within itself and with other churches, gospel-believing and preaching congregations, that we are on the same mission together, that that should be a priority within the body of Christ. That in fact, in Jesus' own words in John 17, that he would wish that we would be one even as he is one with the Father. And then later says to us that it would be a witness to the outside world. And far too often, it's a very different witness we're giving within the body of Christ, isn't it? And it's evidence that the world has gotten a lot more in the church than we'd like to admit. Now there's time to break fellowship, isn't there? We just finished a little series on American Presbyterianism here at Cornerstone during the Sunday school hour. In the 50th anniversary of our denomination, the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, we were encouraged, spend some time within your congregation this year talking about history and talking about the story, retelling the story. And one of the things we retold was the fact that there's been division. There's been division in the past, previous to the denomination and even within the denomination. We noticed also that previous to the denomination, there were things that were worthwhile us breaking fellowship on. That in the previous church, doctrines that were core to the Christian faith, apostle creed type doctrines, like the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and 
all kinds of key doctrinal matters related to the gospel were being denied. And the reality was that the church had left the gospel. And the important thing then is for members to go and pursue a church that will be a continuing witness to the gospel. That's an appropriate break in fellowship. But that should be hard. That should be closer to the last resort than the first impulse. And very often, we're closer to the first impulse than the last resort, aren't we? Something happens, we get frustrated about it, we'll just cut our losses and go to the church down the street. They won't know our story, and I like their carpet better anyway. Before we fall into those kind of patterns, which are, again, so common... I was reading again in Ephesians chapter 4 and thought, this is a great test. Listen to this test. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Do you think he knew division? Prisoner for the Lord as he writes these words? I think he did. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Here's how I want you to walk. With all humility, with gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another in love, could be translated put up with one another. Put up with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's not a, that's not a, a kind of a trigger-happy, ready-to-jump at my first frustration. There's a gentleness and a patience. There's a bearing with one another in love. You, you know, I'm going to just throw this out there. I'm going to imagine there are people at Cornerstone that you really love if you've been a member here for any length of time. I know that's true. And then there are people here that you don't care for as much. Okay, I said it. I said it out loud. It's just true. And you know what? Both are people whom Jesus has shed His blood for and of which you will be in eternity with. Chesterton said, we'll often be surprised when we get to heaven because we'll get there looking for friends that didn't arrive, and lo and behold, we'll find enemies that are saved in the midst of heaven itself. That's going to happen. The recognition that God's ways are often not our ways. We must be gentle. We must be patient. We must bear with one another in love. And notice the language, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I just want to ask the question as we kind of enter back into Psalm 133. I want to ask a question, how do you become that kind of a person? How do you become a kind of person who's gentle and bearing with others in love and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? And I, I want to give you... Two things here, two points. I want you to, to think of it in this way. This kind of unity happens when we let what unifies us, what unifies us, really unify us. When we let what unifies us really unify us. That may sound paradoxical, but we'll get there. And secondly, by not letting what doesn't unify us, divide us. By not letting what doesn't unify us, divide us. I was thinking yesterday, 
that unity is really only as strong as the thing which unifies you with someone else. Unity is only as strong as the thing which unifies you with someone else. Christy and I were at a concert a few years ago with 30,000 of our favorite friends. And when we were there, the artist we love, music we love, it's Nashville after all. It's absolutely amazing. It was, it was like magical. Like we're all singing this song. We know all of its lyrics and everybody around you is singing. And it's just this remarkable experience of unity, right? Around this artist and around this, this music. It's an incredible phenomenon. Some of you experienced this on Thursday or, or Friday or Saturday when you were watching your, your favorite football team. And, and you were maybe gathered, some of you in a stadium, others of you around the TV with people who were rooting for the same team. And it's just, a, I don't know, it's this great experience of unity. I, I was down in Mississippi for Thanksgiving and, and we were watching the Egg Bowl as we always do. And I was not with friends. Let me just put it that way. And, and the recognition in the midst of that was like, I don't like you people. Like, I liked you before this game. I'll probably like you after this game, but I don't like you during this game, you know, for a variety of reasons. What is it that's unifying you in that money? What unified us in that 30,000 group of people? Well, what unified us was music. What unified us was an artist, and love for particular songs. We were willing to pay money and pilgrim our way to the, to the venue. What's remarkable is I've never hung out with those people again. Like when the music ended, we became a crowd, not a community. Because what brought us together was no more. The body of Christ is not like that, you see. The quality of the unity of what brings us together, according to David here in Psalm 133, has to do with oil and dew. There's really two images he gives us here in the the psalm. In verse 2 and in verse 3, it's two analogies that, let's just be honest, as we read it, we're not sure what he's talking about. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like this, a precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And we're like, I hope unity's not like that. That feels really messy, right? As you're like reading that. Well, why does he give us this image of oil? Well, he's obviously not talking about that turkey that you fried in peanut oil on Thursday. He's talking about an anointing oil, the recipe of which we get in Exodus chapter 30. This, this oil that's filled with spices and myrrh and cinnamon and aromatic cane and is blended together by a perfumer. We looked at this when we worked our way through the book of Exodus a couple of years ago. Um, and notice it's, it's an oil that's specially given to the high priest. Notice the image here. Running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron. He's the high priest. He was the one who actually went in on the behalf of God's people to give sacrifices. He was the only one who could enter into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and represent the people to God and God to the people. He was the mediator between God and His people. He was set apart as an anointed one in order to bring unity between God and His people. He stood in the gap. He stood as the one who represented God to the people and people, the people to God. 
He came in with, with, with the blood to be sprinkled on uh, the Ark of the Covenant, on that mercy seat, uh, so that their sin could be atoned for, so that oneness could be brought between God and His people. How sweet it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like that oil of someone like a high priest who's been set apart to go in and intercede on the behalf of God's people that oneness might happen. And then it's like dew, he says there in verse 3. Mount Hermon, he says, he has this incredible dew. This dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Here's what unity is like. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon. Now this is an unusual verse, not only because we're not sure what it's talking about, but Mount Hermon was this large mountain in the the, the northern part of of Palestine. And, And it was it was like famous for precipitation, whether it was rain or snow or, or dew. It was a place that in the middle of the, the ancient Near East that was very dry and often in drought, it was a place you could go and still be refreshed. It was, it was, a, it was the highest peak, almost 10,000 feet. You'd see snow on it most of the year. This peak you could go to as an oasis. Can you imagine these traveling Israelites? Those coming from the north, they would have, they would have longed to be at, at a Mount Hermon on their way in. That's part of what is being displayed here, is this is a place where you can be refreshed. This is a place where life is given, where, where dew and freshness is, is presented to God's people. He says the, the unity of God's people is like oil that runs down the beard of Aaron, and the unity of God's people is like dew that, that's on Mount Hermon that extends blessing even life forevermore. Now what is he getting at here? Well, there's a number of things he's getting at, but I want to make one particular point. I don't know if you noticed this in the reading of Psalm 133, but there's a direction in Psalm 133, and there's a direction downward in Psalm 133. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look there at verse 2, notice it. It is like the precious oil on the head running down, down on the beard on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. And then in verse 2, it's like the dew of Hermon that's the highest peak, notice, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Oh, what a strange reference. You see, Mount Hermon's really nowhere near the mountains of Zion in the way that the people of Israel would have thought about it. That's far down in the south. Mount Hermon's way up in the north. He's saying that unity and the pleasantness that is in the life of the people of Israel is like oil that runs down the beard, even Aaron's beard, for the intercessor of God's people, but it runs the length of the nation of Israel. It covers the whole of God's people. From the far away to the north, the dew is as rich in the south because it comes from Mount Hermon all the way to Mount Zion, Jerusalem, where it is the people of Israel are going, to a much lower elevation, maybe 2,000 feet. The the oil is running down. The dew is running down. The riches of God's people and the unity of God's people runs downward. In other words, our unity doesn't come from the bottom up. It doesn't come from you and me. 
It doesn't come because we've mastered a plan or we've mustered the energy to create unity in the body of Christ. I tell you what, many of our greatest efforts to create unity in the body of Christ is almost a surefire way to create division. The unity that comes in the body of Christ must come from above. It's got to come like anointing oil that runs down the beard, even to the, to the skirt, so to speak, of the robe, could be translated in the Hebrew. It comes from Mount Hermon, the tallest place in the nation, to running all the way down to the most southernmost parts of the region. It's going to touch every part. It goes from the highest to the lowest. It runs from up all the way down. Do you see what unifies the body of Christ and the only way in which we will ever be unified is if we recognize the one who is on top, the master, the chief, the one who is the high priest, the one who abides at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the one who intercedes on our behalf even now, the one who is on high, the only way in which we will ever be unified is if he comes down. Only if he comes down. Only if the dew that is found at the top of Mount Hermon makes it all the way down into the basin of Middle Tennessee. Only unless that oil that starts at the top of the head runs all the way down the beard, even to the, to the skirt of the robe. Only when the unity that is found in Christ actually permeates every fiber of the church of Jesus Christ, will we know where unity is really found? It's found above. The unity from above. We're about to celebrate Advent. Isn't that what Advent is all about? This Emmanuel, this one from on high who's going to come down and make his dwelling place with you and with me, who's going to come to bring to us a peace, and a unity. He prays in John 17 that we might be one even as He is one. That the world might see that. And through the witness of the unity of the oneness of the body of Christ, their love and their grace for one another, the world might look and see the authenticity of the gospel, the verification of the power of the gospel through the unity and the power of the body of Christ. You see, the richness of what is being described here is exactly what you and I most desperately need is that we need a Savior to come down. We need a Savior who is anointed on high by the power of His Father, who comes through baptism into that anointing, hearing the declaration of His Father being sent out into mission to go into uh, Jerusalem and to all of Israel, preaching that gospel of repentance drawing every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation from the furthest north to the furthest south to the furthest east to the furthest west to call for himself a people for his treasured possession that we might all be one even as he is one. For God so loved the world he gave. Read King Down. For God so loved the world that he gave. He came down. His only Son, our anointed priest, that whosoever believes in Him, the people that you like, people you don't particularly like, Jews, Gentiles, and all other types, should not perish, but believe in Him, will have the blessing of Zion, life forevermore.
everlasting life. You see, Psalm 133 is telling us that we need an anointing. An anointing that comes only through the anointed one. Isn't that what they were looking for, the Messiah? What does it mean to be the Messiah? It means to be the anointed one. We're in a season where we're looking for the anointed one. We're preparing for his coming again. And we want there to be unity within the body of Christ from top to bottom, from inside out. That when he comes, he will see a bride sanctified by his grace whom he will receive as his own and carry across the threshold into the new heavens and the new earth. And you know what he's made you? Priests of the living God. He's called you a holy nation, you understand. A people for his own possession who have direct access to him and to the heavenly father through his mediation. That we as a people who've now received the unity that comes in Christ, what do we give? We give the unity that we've received in Christ. We start loving one another with the love that we've been loved by, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we start looking to others, not in their personality profiles or their socioeconomic structures or whether we like hanging out with them or not, but we begin to see them as purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ our brother and sister in whom we will share all eternity with. We are just getting started at Cornerstone. You understand that, right? This church may come and it may go. I don't know what the Lord has for Cornerstone. You don't either. But what you're seeing in the lives of the people who are around you, who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are forever before His face. We are one in Him. Let's let what unifies us, unify us as we walk by faith and not by sight. Father in heaven, we would pray that these truths would find a home inside of us. That increasingly as a congregation, we would be marked by the kind of unity that David is singing about here in Psalm 133, the kind of unity that Jesus is praying about in John 17, the kind of unity that's coming in Revelation 21 and 22. Prepare us for that day by extending the love and the unity that we have right now in Christ Jesus through the hearts and souls of your people. Father, would you bed down petty division? Would you pad down spirits of factionalism and partied agendas, whether within this local congregation or within any other? And would you make a name for yourself in and through the gentleness and the patience and the bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace? Would you make a name for yourself through a body that would increasingly look like that. And Lord, when we fail, would we know that we have a high priest to run to? When we have slipped into gossip or slander, when we've talked negatively behind someone's back, when we've made a lot out of the color of the carpet, 
rather than over unevangelized neighbors or the needs of our poor in the community or over sanctification, which some of us narrowly think about. Lord, would you bring conviction there? And would you remind us in that conviction that we have a high priest who perfectly brought forth this unity through experiencing the deepest and the darkest measure of division, even for us on the cross. Would the richness of that gospel be ours in Christ Jesus today and always? We ask this in your holy name. Amen.